welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Well, have you heard? Commercial real estate development is back in vogue. And if you work in the core markets, the gateway cities, you know, you've seen the cranes. If you work in the apartment sector, you've seen a lot of construction. We're also starting to see more development in secondary cities as the economy and real estate continue to recover. Well, you may be surprised just how beneficial and important development is to the U.S. economy. Please welcome my first guest, Gene Kane, 2014 Chairman of NAOP, the National Development Association. Gene, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Michael. Well, Gene, we appreciate uh, you calling in. And to get us started, just how much development have we seen lately? Is it really improving? You know, I love your comment that you had in the uh, intro talking about development being back in vogue. Um, 2012 was one of the strongest years we've seen recently in the development sector and we don't have the stats in yet for 2013 formalized but we believe that 2013 is going to be even slightly better than what we saw in 2012 in 2012 we saw about three and a little over three three seven million three hundred seven million square feet of real estate built and that was like a 29 percent increase over what we saw the prior year and yeah, I mean, it's significant. And while it is significant, I, I need to point out to you that we're still not back to pre-recession re- levels. You know, so like back in 2007, we saw over 839 million square feet built. You know, versus the stat I told you earlier of 307 million square feet. So we're still behind the pre-recession levels. Yeah, we still have a ways to go, don't we? Well, what is the financial impact on the job market and uh, in the U.S. economy from commercial real estate development? I, I think some people may be a little surprised at that. I, th- I think they should, are, will be surprised, too. But, you know, if you really think about commercial real estate, it's the backbone of jobs in every community, in nearly every community. It's where Americans work, shop, play. If you think about it, everyone goes to a building to work, um, or most people go to a building to work, um, or shop and live in buildings. So it's about it's about what we do. And commercial real estate supported about 2.3 million American jobs in 2012. And the new space that we've created and developed the development sector has added enough space to accommodate about 776,000 jobs. So it's really significant. Yeah, that's amazing. And what about earnings for for these employees? Uh, how how much is, is what are those numbers? You mean the average salary for those employees? Yeah, the, or you know the the way we really look on the impact mm-hmm. to the economy is really you know how does how has it affected GDP? Okay. So we think like the commercial real estate has contributed about three hundred three point four billion to U.S. GDP. And that's about a 16% increase over the prior year. And again, I'm, look, I'm quoting 2012 stats because we don't have the 2013 ones finalized yet. But that's pretty significant. And if you think about um, the construction, has contributed about 96.7 billion in new personal earnings. So those are big numbers. You know, when you think about it, we've got in our industry, we've got architects and engineers and planners who design the project and we've got contractors and construction workers who are building the buildings and then we have staff that actually manages those properties 
So commercial real estate really helps both in job creation and economic growth. Yeah, that's amazing. So $303 billion in GDP. Yep. Well, how much is actually spent on construction, uh, Gene, and how is that trending? That's trending. The construction um, spending is trending up as well. In commercial real estate, it had totaled about a little over $100 billion, and that was a nine, close to a 10% increase over the prior year. Um, so if, if you think about you know, $92.28 billion in 2011 and then 81 in 2010, so to increase up to 100, that's, that's pretty significant. And again, we expect 13 to be even stronger than that. Yeah, that's amazing. As you think back at 2012, you know, especially uh, in some of the secondary cities, you didn't really see much construction, maybe some apartments. But it seems like in 2013, we, we did start seeing some cranes move and uh, a lot more development. So we really should see these numbers really increase when those numbers are put together, shouldn't we? Yeah, you know, you, talk, you talked about that secondary market. It, it made me think about something, you know. Um, NAP, which she told the folks that I'm chairman of this year, um, actually has a research foundation, and they just came out with a report on the impact of commercial real estate on the secondary market. So if any of your listeners was, were interested in that kind of report, um, they could go to nilp.org slash research, and there's a lot of great reports. But you're exactly right that the secondary markets are seeing the cranes like the primary markets were seeing earlier. Well, that's great. Well, we'll put that link uh, on the uh, show information there so people can uh, really easily uh, get there. We appreciate that. And you know, NAOP is an incredible organization for folks involved in the uh, commercial real estate development world, isn't it? It is. And, and, and like I was saying earlier, it really, there's so many different kinds of people involved with NAOP. Clearly, you have the developers who have the vision um, and, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit to 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 put up a building or, or a, a park. But supporting them in that, that effort are the architects, the engineers, um, the laborers in the field. Um, it, it, it really, there's all sorts of kinds of people in this industry and within our um, organization. It's just, I think the people are the best, <laughs> the best part of the industry. Yeah, it is a great place for networking as well, isn't it? What, yeah, yeah. what are some of the benefits of, of membership of NAOP for, for some of the folks who may not be familiar with it or, or maybe familiar with NAOP but, but haven't been involved lately? You know, I, I, for me, I've found the biggest benefits to be the networking and the relationship building. And, you know, you may know your city really well or the people in your market, but getting outside of your market and, and talking to people who are doing things differently or seeing things differently, particularly me, I'm headquartered in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and to hear what's going on on the coast, because, you know, things usually move inward, um, is really exciting, and the kinds of people I get to meet. Um, so the networking is huge. Uh, the other thing that NAB really brings to the table is advocacy, and, you know, <laughs> you have to have government being pro-business so that we can start building buildings and um, the advocacy efforts um, with NAB are just tremendous and um, also the education you always have to you know keep learning more because things change and the education is great so I think those are the three primary things that I find is a great benefit to NAB. Yeah, those are great benefits. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today and talk about this this amazing amount of, of GDP 
uh, value that commercial real estate development has in the jobs, I think, will really surprise people. And that's something we, we need to get out to our government officials and uh, make sure they don't do things like squash uh, 1031 exchanges and some of the things that really create uh, momentum in our industry and create so many jobs. And you talked about understanding the, the country as, as a whole of what's going on to help yourself and, and your clients. When it comes to, to levels of construction in 2012, what were some of the states where you saw the most the development? Well, the top two have remained the top two. It's New York and Texas. And clearly the energy sector, I believe, has helped Texas tremendously. So they still remain at the top. Um, but there's some surprises. You, you know, you saw states like Iowa and Ohio and Georgia uh, crack the top ten. And um, there's other states um, like California and Florida that, that continue to be on the list. And if you'd like me to, for me to go through the top ten, I'd be happy to do it um, or the levels. So Sure, yeah. If you could give us the top uh, five at least. In, uh, oh, okay, in so the top, you know, number one is New York. And they had about $4.8 billion in um, spending, supporting about 123,000 jobs. Mm. Um, Texas had about $4.34 billion in spending. So they're close to New York. And they supported about 163,000 jobs. And then you drop down to $2.9 billion, and that's Iowa. And that's what the real surprise wow. is. And uh, they supported about 86,000 jobs, followed by California with $2.9 billion in spending. And then um, rounding up number five is Ohio with $2.4 billion in spending. So, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting set of states. Yeah, well, who'd have thunk it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Gene, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate uh, you sharing your intel. Oh, thank you. For more information from Gene and NAOP, visit NAOP.org. That's N-A-I-O-P.org. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more to discuss on development, including some information on 24-hour cities. I'm Michael Bull. You're listening to the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast. For example, last week we covered the top 10 success strategies for commercial agents. The week before that, we had Rod Santamassimo with the Massimo Group, and he shared tips and strategies for selling your consulting business and services business. Uh, just pick, grab your phone, tablet, or computer, visit iTunes, or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Today we're talking about commercial real estate development. We're pleased to have Hugh Kelly with us in the Studio One today. Hugh is a PhD. He's a professor at NYU. He's also a commercial real estate consultant. Hugh, additionally, Hugh is the 2014 chair for CRE, the Counselors of Real Estate Association. Hugh, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Well, we appreciate it. And it's, uh, it's kind of nice to see recovery back and, and what that's doing for the economy. And, uh, you know, as the economy has recovered 
and, and, and we do a lot of investment sales in our shop, it was really interesting to see and was really apparent how much investors were really after these 24-hour cities, these, these gateway markets, uh, you know, these markets like New York and D.C. and San Francisco. And, um, you know, what makes these 24-hour cities so attractive to investors, you? Well, it's uh, it's amazing, Michael. Real, real estate people are maybe not as dumb as we look, right? <laughs> uh, uh, I think the investors uh, looking at the gateway cities, the 24-hour cities, uh, uh, were based on past performance, uh, the f- their familiarity with it. Um, uh, liquidity certainly is a, is a major uh, uh, element, and a, a flight to quality. Uh, you know the performance of the 24-hour cities over the last 25 years, particularly downtown office buildings, has been spectacularly higher than, uh, than the average in nine-to-five cities, or indeed any of the other large cities in the country. Uh, cumulative total performance, according to my research, has been about twice as high in the 24-hour downtowns as before. That's attractive to capital, and I think the investors also uh, correctly bet that the 24-hour cities would recover more quickly and more steeply uh, than the average U.S. city. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And and did they do better through the downturn as well? You know, the 24-hour cities suffered along with everybody else. <laughs> just uh, just as there was plenty of blame to go around for why this happened, yeah. uh, everybody got caught in the downdraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so percentage-wise, 24-hour cities uh, suffered like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But they did come back faster, and having come back, they have come back more steeply. Okay. If somebody's just rolling the dial here and they're not a commercial real estate professional, what is the definition of a 24-hour city? Good question. (laughs) Uh, uh, For a long time, uh, I would say for the first 10 or 15 years of the subject was uh, was on the table, it was like the Potter Stewart definition. You know Potter Stewart, the Supreme Court Justice, who had to write the first uh, obscenity decision? He said, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. (laughs) Uh, That's how 24-hour cities were. We're doing better on definition now. 24-hour cities, uh, first of all, are cities of, of high urban density, uh, uh, places that have uh, a mix of, uh, uh, of uses with, uh, within them that enable a city to remain active uh, into the 11 o'clock or, or, or midnight hour. Uh, that means restaurants, that means bars, that means uh, uh, businesses that stay open because they're connected all around the world. So they, they play the worldwide time zone game very well. Uh, uh, so they they are edgy cities, uh, and they are uh, cities of great diversity. Those are those are the hallmarks of twenty four hour cities. And what are the twenty four hour cities right now in the in the U S. at least? Well, we've talked about the big big five: mm-hmm. uh, New York, uh, the city that never sleeps, right. uh, and hasn't really since the days of Damon Runyon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, but then uh, Boston and Washington and Chicago and San Francisco. That's the big five. I think. Miami has got to uh, now say that it's earned 24-hour status with South Beach and the growth of its downtown. And, of course, someone reminded me you can't talk about 24-hour cities and not include Las Vegas. Las Vegas, right. So let's say those seven for starters. And are there cities that are getting closer to being 24-hour cities or or maybe that are trying to be? Lots of cities are trying to be, and some are indeed getting getting close. I like Seattle, for example. Uh, I think Seattle's... uh, downtown mix of uh, of office 
and of, uh, of residential uh, is, is a very strong one. It's got good uh, central uh, communication. It's got a tech base, which is important for 24-hour activity because the techies work around the clock. Uh, and it's got you know, that beautiful harbor and that beautiful port that brings tourists into town, and that adds to nightlife and 24-hour characteristics. Maybe I'm a techie then. I like to work <laughs> all around the clock. Uh, are all techies workaholics and are all workaholics techies? Maybe I don't not. know. Maybe not. Well, how might a, a city planner uh, or a, a zoning official or city official or maybe even developers in a city uh, try to make their city a 24-hour city? How, how do they get there? You know, uh, it's, it, it's something that takes time and it takes money. Um, uh, the fact is that those five cities that I mentioned were all in terrible shape 25 or 30 years ago. New York was in fiscal crisis. Boston had its busing conflict. Washington was the murder capital of the country. San Francisco murdered its mayor. You know, so cities can indeed change, uh, but it takes long-term commitment to, uh, to, uh, to doing that. One uh, thing that I think that is very, very critical is to focus on downtown housing. Uh, uh, it really is the creation of walk-to-work housing that allows people to stay on the job longer uh, and that promotes the ability for restaurants and other elements of nightlife and entertainment to uh, draw people uh, into their businesses into the evening hours. Um, so, so housing is very, very important uh, and that's much harder than it sounds. You have to create a critical mass that's somewhere in the, uh, in the order of 20 uh, to 25 uh, people per acre or 13 to 15,000 people per square mile around the center city. There aren't many cities that have the will to accomplish that. Right, and how about student population downtown? Is that helpful? Student populations are amazingly powerful forces for creating 24-hour cities. Once again, you know, students and all-nighters kind of go together, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, well, just your students are all-night uh, studiers, right? <laughs> uh, well, they are all-night somethings. <laughs> uh, you know, are uh, but if you look at the cities, you know, Boston, for example, has tremendous benefit from the fact that Harvard and MIT and and Boston College and Boston University and Northeastern University are all in urban campuses, not far away. In New York, Columbia, NYU, Fordham. Uh, much the same, uh, much the same way. You go to San Francisco, you go to Chicago. It's the same, same story. You create a lot of uh, of students that are active in the downtown. You do two things. One is you bring bright people to your city, and if they like it, they stay. It gives them economic opportunity, and then it also uh, creates this activity on the street uh, that is uh, that is really energizing to cities. Yeah, that's important. You got to have the, and then you got to have the shopping down there for them as well, right? If you're going to tra attract the students and you're going to attract the housing, there's got to be shopping. There's got to be grocery stores, and and there, there you're, then you're getting your 24-hour city. Well, we're going to have to take a sh short break here, and uh, Hugh Kelly's going to stay with us here in Studio One in Atlanta. Glad to have him here. And next, we're going to talk about some of the advantages and challenges of developing in the current market. It's interesting to. To, to work with tenants in this market. Uh, there's a lot of demand from some tenants and some tenants are scarce. So we'll talk about that. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. 
France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404 832 8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Glad you can be with us today. Well, we have some great shows coming up for you, including a shows with updates on the office market, retail, and uh, multifamily markets, and these are all separate shows, so be sure to catch topics of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're discussing commercial real estate development. We have Hugh Kelly here with us, 2014 chair for CRE, Counselors of Real Estate. And, and Hugh, why should developers and lenders you know, take the risk of development right now after dealing with so much distress in this past recession? You might say it's DNA. DNA. Uh, in this context, that means developers need activity. <laughs> uh, this is the way you make yeah. money. Uh, uh, it's been a long time development uh, ground to a near halt in 2009 and 2010. Uh, now markets are slowly working their way back and developers, I have to say, slowly and cautiously in most places and in most property types are starting to come back into the markets. We're talking about the survivors here. Right, the ones who made it through. Yeah, so you're, obviously we're seeing a lot of apartment development all around the country, right? And, and office and, and retail in some of those uh, 24-hour cities that we talked about before. But now we're also starting to see some development in, these, in the secondary cities. And, you know, one of the, the risks of development is that that length of time you know that it takes to get from inception to to opening what are some typical time frames that these developers are dealing with in that regard uh, do you want extremes <laughs> yeah i'll take uh you know the, the mega projects you know really cover uh several business cycles mm -hmm. and so they need to be planned out to to survive through that uh las colinas in the, in the dallas area uh, for example has uh, uh, won all sorts of awards, ULI awards, but it has had numerous downturns that it's had to cope with. Battery Park City, which is a shining success in New York City, that dirt was put in the Hudson River in 1969, and it's just finishing its build out now. Wow. Uh, of course, if you are uh, lucky enough to be building in a business park, that has its entitlements in place, and you're dealing with a more modified project, you're not dealing with decades, you're dealing with a nine to 18 month development time frame, much more manageable. Right, yeah, we've had good success selling land that, that we sell around the country when the entitlements are in place, and there's an immediate need that someone can come in and build and they see immediate demand. That land seems to be selling really well, and it's a really picked up demand. Well, you, where do you see opportunities for developers in the current market? Uh, I would I would say look at the basic economy. Mm -hmm. What's growing? Energy, technology, eds and meds. These these are things. Practically every university and major hospital in the con country is expanding and expanding not in their primary facilities, but in the needs for for office for their for their staff and faculty, and for ancillary uh, activity. So I think that that's very important. Energy cities like Houston are doing very, very well and have created great uh, opportunities. And from Silicon Valley uh, to Silicon Alley in New York, uh, you've got lots and lots of, of development going on. The Google building, 
for example, uh, in, uh, in the Chelsea area of Manhattan, uh, a $2 billion investment by, uh, by Google has spawned all sorts of activity and spin-offs right in the neighborhood. Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of opportunities now, but there's a lot of the larger tenants who, because of the lack of new construction, are finding it hard to get into real high-quality locations. So, yeah, I think uh, it's a real good time. But there's also some challenges, right, for developers that's a little harder to do developments, I guess, than it was in the go-go years. What are what are some of the obstacles they're dealing with? Well, risk is always a, a question of managing, right? Mm -hmm. And the worst thing to manage is uncertainty. And developers are facing tremendous uncertainty uh, in terms of are we really going to uh, uh, begin to accelerate our economy and create the jobs and the demand uh, that's, that's there. And uh, uh, frankly, our government has not helped in that, uh, in that regard. Uh, I like to uh, uh, say that we have two wars that we should be rowing on, the monetary policy and the fiscal policy. Well, the Fed has been rowing vigorously, uh, some say too vigorously, uh, but the other war, the fiscal policy, has been totally out of the water because Congress and the administration can't get along and can't uh, uh, move uh, on, on projects that are really important to the, to the country. So get rid of that uncertainty, we'll do a lot better. The other thing is interest rates. Mm -hmm. Developers uh, worry about their costs and a lot of their costs is in their construction interest. So we need to, to uh, great, create greater certainty around uh, the cost of money. Well said, Hugh. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. If you'd like more information from Hugh Kelly and CRE, visit CRE.org. We'll stay with us in just a minute. We'll talk to a leading developer, and we'll get their take on the market and see what types of properties they're developing around the country. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today, we're talking about commercial real estate development. Please welcome my next guest, uh, Connor McNally, Chief Development Officer with Carter. Carter is a national real estate investment, development, and advisory firm founded in 1958. Connor, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Michael. Well, we appreciate it. And, you know, everyone hears that uh, development is back, that uh, people are building again. You guys have been building since, what, the 60s. So how busy are you today? Well, well they're right. Development uh, is back. We are busy. Um, we're busy, and that's a, that's a good thing. Um, you know, we're busy probably in different ways than we were pre-recession. Um, our, our sort of big two focus areas right now, our big hot sectors are uh, off-campus student housing, and uh, walkable urban multifamily. Uh, we're finishing up or just have finished up three large projects, uh, the last phase of a multifamily project in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, a 750-bed student housing project at Ole Miss, and a 300-unit uh, urban multifamily project in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we have three more projects under construction, student housing project in San Antonio, Texas, um, a large student housing project in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a 235-unit uh, uh, multifamily project here in Atlanta. Okay. And are those fee development deals or are those uh, private investment with Carter? 
Those are private investment deals with Carter. Um, historically, we've had a balance in our business between program management or owner's rep development and, and principal development that we do ourselves. Uh, we have shifted that pendulum much more towards the principal or equity development side. So that's where probably 70 or 80 percent of our, our activity is right now. But we are still very focused on program management, uh, have eight large education projects going right now. Okay. So in, in, in total, we've uh, we've developed or delivered over 650 million in projects since 2011 and have about 325 million under construction right now. So okay, well that's great to hear and uh, you know, we need the jobs, right? Absolutely. So you're bullish on student housing. What other sectors are you bullish on? Um, multifamily, so, so mm -hmm. urban uh, apartments is, is, I would say, the, the, the hottest sector, the most bullish mm -hmm. sector that we see right now. Uh, the, the demographics um, really are, are pushing for that with the millenniums coming through. Um, you know, lots of focus on urban infill. People want to be walkable. Uh, so less sort of traditional garden style product, much more uh, urban, walkable, transit oriented, smaller units. Um, so that's, that's definitely a, a, a strong sector for us. You know, we're still seeing some office, uh, some hotel, uh, but definitely the residential sectors, apartments, and off-campus student housing are much more active. And those apartment projects that you've built lately, they're still uh, leasing up pretty quickly? Yeah, th they're leasing up extremely quickly. We're seeing yeah. great lease volume. Um, pricing is very, very good as well. And then on the, uh, on the investment side, uh, we recently sold a major project up in Cincinnati, uh, and we're seeing you know, strong cap rates uh, and strong investor interest as well. Okay. Now, you said you've done some, a lot of fee development over the years, and you've done some public-private partnerships. What have you, have you learned through with public-private partnerships? What are some of the important factors uh, today, and is there much demand uh, for those type of projects today? Yeah, I definitely still think that there's good demand for them. Um, we we've, we've, uh, have two large public-private partnership programs going up in Ohio right now, a major project in Cincinnati called the Banks, and we've just delivered uh, or are delivering a project in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is public-private as well. They, they do tend to be pretty complicated. Um, you know, it, it's, it can be tough to work with public entities, particularly if there's a lot involved. I think the keys to it are to have, uh, from the public side, for there to be simplicity in the way that the deals are structured. Uh, flexibility so that there isn't just one way to set up the deal um, and really the most important thing is transparency on both sides mm -hmm. you know it's it's important as a developer to understand the rules of the game to understand the way things need to work but it's also very important for the public body to have transparency from the developer and not to think that it's a constant negotiation of how much subsidy uh, is required so the more flexibility and openness and transparency there is in the process from the start, uh, the more successful it can be. Yeah, that's a good point. And you guys have, Carter, have done a, a lot of uh, mixed-use developments, and I'm interested to hear from you since we've just went through a downturn and a recession. Uh, what have we learned through that recession about mixed-use projects? What, what's, what's the, uh, what, what have we learned from that? You know, I think in the development community, we, we've learned that there's a lot of complexity there, mm -hmm. and, and you've got to be very careful at the way you, you execute and structure the deals if you want to be financially successful with them. A, a lot of- And we do, don't we? We do. We're, we're, we're in business to make money, and That's so right. we, uh, we like to do that. Um, oftentimes, you'll see a development that can be very successful for the users, uh, you know, in terms of great uh, vibrancy and a great mix of uses, 
But from the, a design and execution perspective, you've got to be very careful to make sure you're not overcomplicating things. Vertically integrating lots of different uses has, is something that's been shown to be very costly and, and you know, can, can hurt the financials. Um, and then structuring the deals in a way where, particularly post-recession, um, on the exit side, investors tend to want to be more focused on a particular product class. And so the, the group of investors who would want to buy a large mixed-use project that has lots of uses and an income stream that's split between all those uses, that's not a huge buyer pool. You tend to get investors who want to be focused on one sector and one area, and if you're doing a mixed-use project, structuring it so that you can separately sell the pieces to investors who are focused in that segment and that, that sort of core area leads to just a, a smoother and a better exit. Right, that makes sense. An, an apartment owner knows how to handle apartments and a retail owner knows how to handle retail. That, that makes a lot of sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll have more on the development market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. IMN, Information Management Network, has some outstanding conferences coming up. Two for the securitization industry, January 21st through 24th in Vegas, and January 27th and 29th in Dallas. For more information, visit IMN.org. That's IMN.org. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about the U.S. development market. We're talking with Connor McNally with Carter. And uh, Connor, I'd like to have your advice that you would give uh, city planners or uh, uh, zoning people in the cities and, and maybe developers who are trying to attract development to their city. What would you tell them? Um, you know, the old, uh, the old acronym KISS, keep yeah. it simple. Um, I'm not implying anyone stupid, but keeping <laughs> it simple. Keep it silly. Keep it keep it simple. Silly, right? That works better. <laughs> um, but yeah, oftentimes you find that the process, both in public-private partnerships, but also just in the general development process, it can get very complicated and very costly. And and time and complexity cost a lot of money as a developer, particularly when you're in a pre-development stage and you're taking a lot of risk. So having a very clear and transparent process that isn't filled with excess fees and hurdles and steps that then have to be offset by subsidies or TIFs on the back end to try to attract folks. It's, it's a lot simpler and more straightforward to have a, a basic straightforward process that's simple to get through, that doesn't have a lot of you know, built-in fees, uh, and, and then doesn't require lots of difficult to achieve taxpayer subsidies to encourage development. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> it can be. It can be. It can but be. but the, just the process of stepping back and analyzing and getting feedback is a step that a lot of cities don't take. But the few that do come out with uh, a much better product in the end of the yeah. day. Well, as we've heard uh, earlier in the show today, uh, commercial real estate development is a big part of the, the U.S. economy. And, and Connor, you're, you're, you're on the forefront of development. You're seeing it every day. What do you expect moving forward in 2014 and moving forward for development volume? Um, we see development volume continuing to grow nicely. Um, it, it obviously is different sector by sector. 
uh, the couple of sectors where we're active in off-campus student housing and, and urban multifamily, we see continued growth in those in the coming couple of years. Um, the student housing sector is interesting in that it has had huge growth in the past five years, has become an institutional asset class where it, it wasn't before. And so it is possible in that sector that it's certain markets, it's a, it's a lot of little markets, um, there could be some supply-demand uh, imbalance there or, 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 or saturation, if you like. Um, less so on the urban multifamily side. We see good strength there. Still have to stick to uh, real estate fundamentals and have good projects well located. Um, and then we do see office volume you know, growing and starting to do better, um, but not as strong as I think the residential sectors will show. You expect uh, much mixed-use development moving forward? Yeah, again, I think we'll continue to see it, um, but but I think we'll see it, it, you know, maybe not in some of the very large and grand mixed-use projects that you've seen in the past, um, l- more compartmentalized, a little bit more focused, and hopefully, you know, better structured. Okay. If a listener has some land out there uh, or a project to bring you, what kind of things should they uh, bring you? They should bring us really cheap, really well-located land in great cities. Right. We'll buy that all day long. All day long. And what cities? Um, we're focused, you know, we're headquartered in the southeast, and so, uh, the, you know, the, the, the major markets of the southeast are, are, are bread and butter. Um, you know, Atlanta, uh, Charlotte, Nashville, uh, Florida markets. Um, but we also are very active in the Midwest. Uh, we're active in Texas now as well. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not afraid of complexity, you know, complex urban sites uh, that, that need a little bit of creativity, um, a mix of uses, oftentimes doing things like shared parking arrangements. That's something we've done quite a bit recently, and more and more cities are embracing. Um, so, you know, those are, the, those are the types of areas where we see a lot more activity. Okay. Well, Connor, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. No problem. Enjoyed it. If you'd like more information from Connor, visit carterusa.com. Well, can you join us next week? We'll cover the U.S. office market. Thanks for joining us today. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. We're excited to announce a new video series called Ask Michael Bull. Each business day, we post a video to a listener-submitted commercial real estate question. To access the discussions or to submit your question, visit YouTube channel Commercial Real Estate Show or Twitter account at Ask Michael Bull. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by your friends at Bull Realty, France Media, Atlanta Office Liquidators, and Wiseman, Noack, Curry, and Wilco. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.